morning, Grace. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 9. Believe it or not, we made it out of chapter 8. If you're visiting, we spent two months in 1 Kings chapter 8. Why? Because I geek out over the Old Testament. Sorry, not sorry. I love it. In fact, I read it this last week and I thought, there's one more sermon there. But 1 Kings chapter 9. We're going to start today by reading the whole chapter. But first, let me, give, let me give you our big idea today, which is this. Guard your heart while you do the dishes. Believe it or not, that's the big takeaway from this chapter. God loves us so much that he comes to us, as he does to Solomon in this chapter, to give us warnings about not letting our hearts drift. Jesus loves us so much that he kindly and tenderly warns us to guard our hearts while we do the dishes, to guard our hearts while we mow the lawn, to guard our hearts as we scroll through Facebook, to guard our hearts as we drive through roundabouts. Loving correction. Jesus specializes in that. Loving correction. Some people approach 1 Kings chapter 9 and think this chapter is kind of haphazardly thrown together and, and lacks a certain theme or togetherness. And on the surface, it does look like that. You might feel that way when you first read it. In 1 Kings 9, you have Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, appearing to Solomon for a second time followed by a story about how a foreign king felt like he got ripped off in this business deal by Solomon, and then followed by a bunch of verses about construction projects, and then a bunch of hard-to-pronounce cities, and you find out who was on the payroll, and it ends with how Solomon drank a bunch of Red Bull and then built a bunch of boats. So it kind of seems haphazard. It kind of seems like it's all just thrown together. And so upon first reading, you might wonder how all of 1 Kings chapter 9 fits together. But there's actually more going on than you might realize. This is actually a very practical chapter. So let's read all of chapter 9 right now. 1 Kings chapter 9. And pay attention and look for the words built or build or building. It occurs 11 times, and that's kind of the thread that's tying these two sections of this chapter together. So 1 Kings chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, and hear the word of the Lord. And as soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build... The Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules... Then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you and your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. 
And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. At the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold as much as he desired, King Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Therefore he said, What kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they are called the land of Kabul to this day. Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. And this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house and the Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer and lower Beth Horon and Baalath and Tamar in the wilderness in the land of Judah and all the store cities that Solomon had and the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen, whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day. But of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. They were the soldiers. They were his officials, his commanders, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work. 550 had charge of the people who carried on the work. But Pharaoh's daughter went up from the city of David to her own house that Solomon had built for her. And then he built the Milo. Three times a year Solomon used to offer up on burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord. Making offerings with it before the Lord. So he finished the house. King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion-Geber. Which is near Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent with the fleet of his servants, seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and brought from their gold 420 talents, and they brought it to King Solomon. Now, doesn't that chapter just warm your heart? I need a drink of water. Some people approach 1 Kings 9 and they think this chapter is kind of haphazardly thrown together and, and lacks a certain togetherness. And on the surface, it does look like that when you read it, doesn't it? So how do these two sections fit together? I mean, in verses 1 through 9, Yahweh appears to Solomon a second time and talks to him. And then in verses 10 through 28, we hear about Hiram, who felt like he got ripped off by Solomon. And then there's all these verses about construction projects and these cities with weird names and a list of who was on the payroll. And then the chapter ends with how Solomon was like Noah on Red Bull on the Red Sea seashore, and he built all these ships. And so, yes, it may seem on the surface to be a mixed bag of verses, but there's actually more unity here than meets the eye. I'll explain that in a moment. But first, what does this chapter teach us about Jesus? How does it expose our hearts? 
Listen, if you ever stumble upon a passage in the Bible and it makes you scratch your head, perhaps like this chapter, you can't go wrong by asking these two questions. One, what does this teach me about my God? And second, you can't go wrong by asking, what does this passage teach me about my own heart? Here's what 1 Kings 9 is telling us about the Trinitarian God that we serve. God cares about us. Jesus cares about us. Now, you may not get that at first glance, but that's what we see here. Jesus cares about us. He does not want us to make a wreck of our lives. 1 Kings 9 is telling us that God is practical. And God knows that if we are to make a wreck of our lives, if we are to ruin our lives, it will happen in the day-to-day stuff of everyday life. God knows that our hearts are so easily lured away from Him. And God's smart enough to know that that can happen even while we're doing the dishes. Our hearts drift from God in little moments, little by little. So understand this, life is made up of 10,000 little moments, and in these little moments, we sow seeds. In these 10,000 little moments, we're either killing sin or resisting it, or we're giving, it, giving into it and giving it room to wreak havoc in our lives. And that's why you don't just wake up one day and despise the Lord. You don't just wake up one day and find yourself bitter and against the Lord. You don't just wake up one day and say, I'm pulling out of church. I I don't need fellowship. I'm done with Christianity. I can do Christianity on my own. You don't just wake up one day and say that. And you don't just wake up one day and say, I'm not so sure I believe the Bible is right when it speaks to that matter or to this issue. And you don't just wake up one day and say, I don't love my spouse anymore. It happens slowly as your communion, your fellowship with God, the, how much you enjoy God. It happens as your communion with God begins to diminish, as your communion with God begins to evaporate. It happens very slowly and very subtly. We don't just wake up one day and find ourselves having drifted far away from the Lord. It doesn't happen in the night when we're asleep. It happens little by little, day after day, in the 10,000 mundane, very ordinary moments in life. And God loves each and every one of us enough to put reminders of this truth in his word. And that's why in his grace he has given us 1 Kings chapter 9. And that's why this chapter is structured the way it is. The first part of this chapter is Yahweh, the Lord, uh, appearing to King Solomon for a second time and warning him against falling away. Warning him and saying, make sure you listen to my word. And the second part is all about Solomon just doing normal king stuff. He's making business deals, he's building things, he's writing paychecks, he's worshiping, he's forming a navy. It's just a day in the life of an ancient Near Eastern king. This is just 
everyday king stuff in the back half of this chapter. All that happens in verses 10 through 28 are are what kings do. And it is with this background that Yahweh appears to Solomon and warns him about guarding his heart. Guarding his heart in the context of building stuff. Why? Because this is the day-to-day stuff, the context, the setting where Solomon's heart would drift. If Solomon's heart is going to drift away from the Lord, which we know it eventually does, we'll see that in two chapters, in first chapter 11, his heart does drift. If Solomon's heart is going to drift, it will take place slowly as he's building a fleet of ships, as he's making business deals with foreign kings, as he's working on the payroll for his crew. And so the Lord appears to Solomon to warn him against letting his heart drift. And if that were to happen, it would happen as Solomon did day-to-day king stuff like building a bunch of things, which he does in this chapter. That's why this chapter is arranged this way in two pieces. It's very intentional. It's warning us to guard our hearts in the day-to-day stuff. It's warning us that God's promises of discipline for his children are not gobbledygook. It's a warning that if our hearts ever drift, they will slowly drift over time as we do the dishes, as we go to work, as we fold the laundry, as we drink our morning cups of coffee. So let's rewind and go back to verse 1 again. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And so after the celebration and the dedication of this temple, Yahweh appears to Solomon for a second time. And Yahweh tells Solomon that that his heart and his eyes are always going to be at the temple. In other words, the Lord is telling Solomon that he wants a relationship with Solomon. He wants a relationship with his people. He wants a relationship with the nation of Israel. His heart will be there. God is telling Solomon that his heart will be there in the temple and that Solomon can commune with Yahweh and Solomon can enjoy him. And so in this passage, Jesus wants us to understand that he is real. He's not like some cut-out cardboard superhero, like somebody from the Avengers that you might find at a movie theater when you walk in. Jesus is not like that. He's not a cut-out cardboard superhero. He's real. And the real Jesus wants you to know him and to know what he's like and to know his heart. So Yahweh appears to Solomon to remind him that the most important relationship in his life is not his relationship with all these foreign kings that he's busy doing business with. The most important relationship in Solomon's life is not his relationship with his wife, Pharaoh's daughter, or his relationship with the king of Egypt, or the king of Tyre, all people that Solomon is dealing with in this this chapter. The most important relationship in King Solomon's life is with the king of the universe, the king of kings, the king of heaven. And the most important thing about us 
is our relationship with God. And because we are sinners, there is always a temptation for us to spread our love out to other gods, other idols, other things that capture our affection and our attention. And the reason we do that is because deep down, we really don't think that Jesus is enough. I mean, at the heart of it all, let's just get honest. The reason we choose other things beside the Lord is because deep down, we really don't believe that Jesus is enough. We struggle to believe that Jesus is better. We're afraid that he can't really satisfy us forever. And so we shop around for other lovers. Listen, the hang-up isn't with God, though. It's with us. And that's why the Lord appears to Solomon to tell him that his heart will always be in the temple. And so God is saying that he's interested in a relationship with us, with people like us. I mean, what kind of God are we dealing with here? He is interested in a relationship with people like us. You all know what we're like, don't you? And God wants a relationship with people like us. God is saying to Solomon, and he's saying to us, you know where to find me. You know where to find me. I can be found. I'm not playing hide and seek with you. I'm not playing games. You know where to find me. Now, what's interesting about this is that the word heart is used 51 times in the book of First and Second Kings, which originally were our one gigantic book. But this is the only place in First and Second Kings that the word heart is used of the Lord. It's the Lord's heart. So God is serious here. He's not playing games with us. He really wants to have a relationship with us. And we've seen this over and over in this book. God can't get close enough to his people. He has made a way possible to enjoy his presence here at the temple And so clearly the hang-up is not with God. The problem is with us, with our hearts. And that's why Yahweh warned Solomon to guard his heart. 1 Kings 9 is gently reminding you to guard your heart while you do the dishes or whatever it is that you do in your life. Proverbs 4.23 also gently reminds you of this. Guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. To guard your heart is to be vigilant about caring for it. It means that you make sure that nothing is creeping in that doesn't belong there. John Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. And so every day there are idols, there are thieves that try to rob us of all the goodness that the Lord has prepared for us. And the sad thing is that our own hearts produce these. I mean, how sad, right? And that's why the Lord appears to Solomon here. Because Solomon's heart is an idol factory. And because the Lord loves him. And all of us, just like Solomon, churn out these idols that make promises that they can't deliver on. They they can't satisfy us. They, They might momentarily. Ray Ortland said, Life does not flow from the outside in. It flows from the inside out. We need our hearts continuously filled with the ever-fresh life of Christ by faith in the gospel. 
Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We will not lose our way on the journey of life if we will keep coming to Jesus and drinking in his acceptance, his forgiveness, his promises, his love. Everything else flows out from deep in there. Your heart has a hunger, a thirst that only Christ can satisfy. And he can overflowingly, forever, freely for you. Come. Come as you are. Come moment by moment. Drink him in. Jesus is far more welcoming than we realize. Jesus is far more welcoming than Western evangelical Christianity has painted him to be. He says, come, drink. He's generous. He's kind. He's welcoming to sinners, welcoming to people like us. And that's what the Lord was saying to Solomon. The temple is where his heart would be. Solomon knew where he could find the Lord. But the Lord moves on now from his heart to address Solomon's heart. Look again at verse 4. And as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you and your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship you, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I've given them and the house that I've consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples, and this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. Listen, Yahweh doesn't have heart problems. Jesus doesn't have heart problems. We do. We have heart problems. Yahweh knows this. And so he comes in love to warn Solomon. Tim Keller said, God sees us as we are, loves us as we are, and accepts us as we are. But by his grace, he does not leave us as we are. So he comes to Solomon in love. But don't miss this. Verse 6 is a promise. Verse 6 is the promise that the Lord will inflict covenant curses on his people, on the nation of Israel, if they walk away and worship other gods. In other words, even this far into the Old Testament, Yahweh just has not got used to pluralism. This far into the Old Testament... The Lord is still uncomfortable with pluralism, with his people worshiping other gods. This far into the Old Testament, and the Lord is still not comfortable sharing his people with other lovers. And so 1 Kings 9, 6 is the Lord saying that 
he is really serious about the first commandment. He wasn't joking about that. Yahweh wasn't joking around when he said, you shall have no other gods before me. If his people walk away and worship other gods, then the Lord will be faithful to his promises to discipline his people. This is a promise that you hope Yahweh doesn't have to keep because you hope your heart doesn't drift or you hope the nation of Israel doesn't go worship other gods, but we know they did. In other words, this is the promise that you hope the, the Lord never has to be faithful to, but even when he is faithful to this promise, he does it because he loves you. He does it because he loves me. He does it because he loves Solomon, because he loves Israel. When the Lord has to be faithful to discipline his children, it's because his children weren't being faithful to him. Now, of course, we're not talking about sinless perfection here. And we're not talking about the Lord bringing covenant curses down upon us because Jesus bore all of the curses that we deserve on the cross. So we're not talking about him bringing curses down upon us. He does discipline us. We're not talking about sinless perfection here. We're sinners. We all sin every day. Only Jesus lived a sinless life. We're talking about our hearts getting hardened to the Lord and we begin to drift and then him loving us enough to capture us once again. When the Lord keeps his promise to discipline us, it is, it is his loving response to us not loving him. Let me say that again. When the Lord keeps his promise to discipline us, it is his loving response to us not loving him. Us, his children, not loving him. So we're not talking about we're going to lose our salvation or anything like that because we don't believe that here. If we could lose our salvation, we would lose our salvation. We're talking about him disciplining his children. No one loves God like they should. Only Jesus did. But the Lord is faithful to discipline his children because he takes the first commandment seriously. And even though this is a promise that you hope the Lord never has to be faithful to, because we don't want our hearts to drift, when he does, he does it because he loves you, because he loves us. Ralph Davis said, Yahweh's faithfulness is a two-edged sword, that he is faithful both in grace and in judgment. Yahweh's fidelity is not displayed just in covenant blessing, but in covenant judgment as well, I would say discipline, by which he testifies that he has not let go of his people, but pursues them even in their sins. We do not have a tame, safe God, but one who is faithful to heal and destroy. Unlike Santa Claus, Yahweh is holy and his threats are not empty gobbledygook. So Jesus comes and warns us about chasing after other gods, other lovers. This is grace. It's not a burden to be warned, is it? It's not a burden. Listen, if you're walking in the forest and someone says, there's a black bear in there, don't go in there. That's not a burden, is it? The book of Hebrews that we went through several years ago was full of gospel hope, but it was also full of warnings. Warnings not to let our heart drift. Warnings not to let our hearts grow cold. And so Jesus is not trying to crush us with layer after layer of warning. He's not trying to ruin the party. He's trying to keep us from ruining our lives. He intends to help us. His words to Solomon here are practical help. These warnings are practical help from God for sin-prone people like us who stumble along through daily life. Yahweh's words are a warning to the proud, and we have every reason to receive them with a whole heart. 
The problem is, I think we see God like the doctor, like going to the doctor. And you know they're going to ask you, have you been exercising? Have you been eating healthy? How many drinks a week do you have? You know, we kind of we think to the doctor, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, you spent years in school and thousands upon thousands of dollars to become a specialist, and yet, I know me. Listen, we could ignore our, you can ignore your doctor and eat fast food every day and never exercise. I'll preach your funeral for you, okay? Because if we don't live healthy lives, we know it's, there's going to be consequences, the results of that, right? So I think sometimes we treat God like the doctor and we're like, I know you say this in your word and I'm just coming in for a checkup, but really, I know what I'm doing here, okay? I know what I'm doing. We don't listen to him. Verse 6 is telling us that there are no one-night stands with other gods. Verse 6 is telling us that Jesus will not sit by idly as we have one-night stands with other gods. That's why in Exodus 34 verse 14, the Lord says that one of his names is Jealous. Exodus 34, 14, For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. His name is Jealous. And so the first half of 1 Kings 9 is a warning against self-assurance. A warning against saying, I don't have to listen to the doctor. I know how to do life. I'm okay. It's a warning to Solomon to guard his heart as he does the things in the back half of the chapter, verses 10 through 28. The first nine verses are a loving, fatherly warning from Yahweh to walk in his commandments. Not perfectly, of course. Only Jesus was perfect. Only Jesus never sinned. Only Jesus kept God's commandments perfectly. But I think we all know the gist of what the Lord is saying to Solomon here. I'm not trying to ruin the party. I'm just trying to keep you from ruining your life. We all know when we're walking with the Lord and when we're not, don't we? When communion is non-existent, when we aren't enjoying God, when our hearts get foggy and they maybe even get bitter or hardened, we all know when our hearts get cold, right? So let's be real. Listen, if we're going to walk in God's ways and keep our hearts from getting cold, we have to be in God's Word, reading it, memorizing it, meditating on it, studying it, hearing it taught and preached here every week. To hear the law preached and be exposed as a needy sinner, you have to hear God's Word. And to be reassured of all the benefits of Christ that come to you in the gospel, you need to hear God's Word. You need to hear God's Word to guard your heart while you do the dishes. If you're going to guard your heart while you do the dishes or while you sit at the DMV or while you place an order at Starbucks, you need God's word. To guard your heart, you need to hear the gospel, the good news that God loves people like us and forgives them. You need to hear the gospel over and over and over again. You need to hear about Jesus, how he lived for you, how he died for you. You need to hear over and over again how good he is, how kind he is. How loving he is, how merciful he is to people like us, how generous he is to sinners like us. That will warm your heart toward him. 
We can choose to not walk in God's ways, but we can't avoid the consequences. We can choose to walk according to our own wisdom, but one thing we can't do is evade the consequences. You can't, and I can't. We can't escape consequences. If we say, oh, phooey, God's warnings, that's just a bunch of empty gobbledygook. If we say that to God's word, and we don't listen to him, we are in danger. Yes, there's mercy and there's grace to help us endure the consequences of our decisions and rebellions and sin, but the consequences remain. That's why Yahweh is warning Solomon here, a father in love warning his son. And so Yahweh texted Solomon and simply said, if you walk in my ways, I'll bless you, and the throne and the kingdom will be secure. But if you walk away and go serve other gods, I will cut you and the nation off, and off you'll go to exile. And that's exactly what eventually happened to the nation of Israel. It happened to Solomon in chapter 11, and it happened to the nation of Israel at the end of 2 Kings. They were carted off as slaves to Babylon. That's who this book is being written to, those people who let their hearts drift. So it's black and white, right? Yahweh is telling us like it is. You have to appreciate that about God. You have to appreciate it about God. He will tell you like it is. He's up front about everything. He doesn't leave us in the dark. He lays it all out on the table. He shows us all of his cards. We can know exactly where we stand with him. No guessing, no wondering what his expectations are. He's laid it all out and given us a book that is full of verses that tell us what he's like, that tell us how his world works, what he expects of us, and how we can seriously mess up our lives if we walk down the wrong path. How kind of him. How kind of him. Think about that. How kind of Jesus to be so upfront with us. How kind of him to get up in our business. In the ancient Near East, no other gods are like this. They weren't up front. It was all a guessing game with every religion in the ancient Near East, with every god. You didn't know what you were supposed to do, or if you did do what you thought you were supposed to do, you didn't know if your god changed his mind and didn't want you to do what you were doing anymore. It was all guesswork. It was like playing the lottery. But Jesus tells us what he's like and what he expects of us. No secrets, no guesswork. If we trust him, he will save us. He will bless us. But if we refuse him, if we stiff arm him, he will discipline us. He would rather save and bless. He'd rather save and bless, by the way. He would rather bless our socks off. But he will discipline us if need be because he loves us so much. Just like we do with our own kids, right? You discipline them, there's consequences to their actions because you love them. If you don't discipline and there aren't consequences, in that moment you're not being a loving parent. Listen, God will not sit back and endorse our stupidity. I know that's not a popular opinion these days. Our culture wants a soft Jesus whose nails are manicured and whose hands smell like strawberry lotion from Victoria's Secret. That's the Jesus that our culture wants. 
But Jesus will not sit back and endorse our ignorance or our stupidity. And I love that about Jesus. He will not sit back and endorse our stupidity or our ignorance. If we are dumb enough to chase after other gods, he will not sit back and not get involved. He will faithfully chase after his unfaithful bride. And isn't that what you want in God? Don't you want a God who doesn't leave you to yourself? Don't you want a God who doesn't support your stupidity? Don't you want a God who goes looking for you when you have run away? Don't you want a God who goes knocking on every door in the shadiest part of town looking for the lover who spurned him? Covenant love is faithful. This is what God's love is like. And it's the way he has always been with his people. Jared Wilson said, would you marry a bride if you knew at the altar she would cheat on you every day? Jesus did. God loves us enough to warn us to guard our hearts. It's tender correction. Jesus specializes in tender correction. Perhaps he's tenderly speaking to your heart today, saying, don't go down that path. Come home. I'll have you. Nobody else wants you, but I'll have you. Maybe you've burned every bridge in every relationship in your life, and people don't like you anymore, and they don't want to be around you anymore. Jesus says to you today, I'll have you. I'll take you. Come home. Just say, Jesus, I've made a mess of my life, and he'll say, I'll enter into that mess. This may be something weird to do at the end of a sermon, but let's change our big idea, shall we? Guard your heart by gazing upon Christ while you do the dishes. How do we guard our hearts while we do the dishes? We have to behold Jesus. We have to gaze upon Jesus. We have to do what David said in Psalm 27 verse 4, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. We have to gaze upon Jesus, read about him in his word, find out what he's like, celebrate his forgiveness through baptism and the Lord's Supper, hear his word preached each week. We have to think about him. We have to rehearse the gospel. We have to worship Ian Duguid said, The answer to my sinful self-centeredness is not more law. It is not telling me that I need to spend more time in Bible study or that I need to pursue longer quiet times or to endure more rigorous Christian disciplines. The answer to my self-centeredness is worship, beholding the beauty of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we all know we need to read our Bible, right? I told you that earlier in the sermon. I'm not denying that. We all know the spiritual disciplines are important. But what changes hearts? Is it the law? Being told what to do? Or is it the gospel? Being told what's been done on our behalf for Jesus. Is it awe of God? Or what we ought to do? The gospel changes our hearts. Beholding the beauty of God in the face of Jesus changes our hearts. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, 
beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we desperately need the Holy Spirit to help us see Jesus again and again and again. That's how you change. That's how you are transformed. That's how you guard your heart. You stay desperate and you beg the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. And since it's Pentecost Sunday... What a timely reminder that we all desperately need the Holy Spirit. And what a great prayer to pray on Pentecost Sunday. Holy Spirit, help me to see the beauty of Jesus. So hear this tender admonition from the Holy Spirit on Pentecost Sunday. Guard your heart by gazing upon Christ while you do the dishes. Or while you do the laundry or while you take your kids swimming, or while you punch in at work. Maybe you'll be like Solomon and drink a bunch of Red Bull and build a fleet of ships. I don't know. Even if you do that, even if you drink a bunch of Red Bull and build a fleet of ships, guard your heart by gazing upon Christ. Whatever you do, If you do king things like Solomon in the back half of this chapter, or if you do mom things or neighborhood things or church things, whatever you do, gaze upon Jesus. He loves you. He forgives you. He's tender and he's kind and he's merciful. Heck, he's even fun. He's the most happy, joy-filled person in the universe. And you can have a relationship with him. You know where to find him. Right here in his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your one and only son. We were singing about it. We've just heard about it. How good you are to us. How kind Thank you that you discipline us when we drift. Thank you that you love us that much. Thank you that you won't let us create and paint our own image of what we think you're like or what we want you to be like. Thank you for revealing yourself in your word and just making it very clear. You tell us what you're like. Help us to receive it by faith even if we have questions. Thank you for loving us. Forgive us. Whatever we do this week, help us to guard our hearts by gazing upon your Son. May the Spirit impress the gospel on our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.